If you go to Siena, you can see the head of St. Catherine of Siena. There's a church in Rome where you can see the foot of Mary Magdalene. What is going on here? Welcome to the Catholic Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Heschmeyer, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Chloe Langer. We've been doing a case throughout the Easter season on the physicality of Catholicism, looking at physical things like the empty tomb, like the Shroud of Turin. And today we're going to talk about one of the most physical, almost grisly Mm -hmm. aspects of Catholicism, namely relics. So Chloe, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Can you explain what a relic is, what the word means, and then maybe explain the difference between first, second, and third class relics? Yeah, sure. I love etymologies. The word relic comes from the Latin word relinquo, which literally means like, I leave behind or I abandon. Um, So a relic is a piece of of the body of a saint or something that was used by the saint while that they were alive or an object that's been touched to a saint, to a, a relic of theirs. So there's three classes of relics. So the first class relic is a part of a saint's body. This is something that you would see like placed in an altar stone at a church. Um, The second class relic is a piece of the saint's clothing or maybe something that they used throughout their life here on earth. And a third class relic is something that's been touched to a first class relic. So when you get something in the mail from a shrine that says we're sending you like a relic of of St. Jude, it's something that's been touched to his relic. So how important are relics in Catholicism and what does the church have to say For example, in the Catechism. Relics are only mentioned once in the Catechism, and they're in a list of forms of piety and popular devotions among the faithful. So the veneration of relics is listed, as well as like pilgrimages, processions, stations of the cross, etc. That's in paragraph 1674. 1675 goes on to talk about how relics are like a beautiful form of devotion, but they're not, the reality of Catholicism doesn't hinge on relics. Um, It says the expressions of piety extend to the liturgical life of the church, but they don't replace it. They should be so drawn up that they harmonize with the liturgical seasons, accord with the sacred liturgy, are in some ways derived from it and lead the people to it, since in fact the liturgy by its very nature is far superior to any of them. So you can't say, you know, I went and saw this relic, so I'm not going to go to church this week. Or it's not supposed to replace the the core of the faith life. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The church isn't built on relics in the sense that we rest the truth of the faith on this or that relic being Mm -hmm. true. But it it is an issue in which I think a lot of non-Catholics especially are weirded out, to put it gently. (laughs) They find it, if not idolatrous, Mm -hmm. at least pretty weird. Why do we worry about relics at all? What's the spiritual significance? Yeah, so St. Jerome writes about this really beautifully. He says, quote, We do not worship relics. We do not adore them for fear that we should bow down to the creature rather than to the creator. But we venerate the relics of the martyrs in order the better to adore him whose martyrs they are. So we we venerate relics, not worshiping them, to bring us closer to God. They're a channel through which we can encounter God. Great. So it's something that leads us not to the saints as an end unto themselves, but as a way of of glorying in God's creation in a Mm -hmm. real way. Mm -hmm. And not just in his creation in a general way, but in these particularly sanctified areas. Mm -hmm. So relics aren't something that are new to the Catholic Church. Scripture talks about the practice of the veneration of relics in the early church. So what does Scripture have to say about relics, and how did the veneration of relics get started? We see relics being used in the Acts of the Apostles. So this isn't some medieval tradition. This Mm -hmm. isn't something that started you know, late in the life of the church, whatever. I think that the starting point 
if we're going to talk about relics, it needs to be the book of Acts, and particularly Acts 19. In verses 11 to 12, it says, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. All right, so there's four things that we got to talk about there. Okay. First, these are physical objects. We would call them relics. Things left behind. Handkerchiefs, aprons that had touched him. Right. Paul isn't going and visiting these people personally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Some physical object that's uh, a third-class relic, right. in the sense of having been touched to his body, mm-hmm. is taken to the sick. Second, these relics are producing miraculous healings without St. Paul doing anything. It isn't that he is intentionally, personally saying, okay, I'm going to go heal this person through this handkerchief or right. whatever. Uh, third, that these healings are a way that God performed extraordinary miracles through Paul. That's what it says. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. Mm-hmm. So just like you said, the relics draw us closer to the worship of God. God works through his saints, and he works through the relics as a way of healing his people. He doesn't view the saints as competitors. He's not worried about like holy people doing miracles and saying, Hey, you can't do miracles. Only I can do miracles. <laughs> At the Last Supper, Jesus says to the apostles that they're going to do greater signs than he did. He wants the church to have an ongoing uh, presence of the miraculous. And relics are one of the ways. And then fourth, these are actual miracles. I mean, that's a pretty obvious point. Mm -hmm. This isn't a placebo effect. This isn't people just saying, you know, I feel better having Paul's handkerchief near me. No, I mean, according to the inspired word of God, Mm -hmm. these are actual miracles God's performing via these physical objects that have been touched to a saint's body. That's what we believe about relics. And we believe that continues to happen even after the person dies and that their body itself can serve as a relic. And we have this as far back as the Old Testament. So if you look at 2 Kings chapter 13, verses 20 to 21, it talks about Elisha being buried and they lay him in the tomb. And so the Israelites bury a guy next to him. This dead guy's body touches Elisha's bone and the guy springs to life. Said the man uh, came to life and stood up on his feet. So God works a miracle through the dead Elisha. Mm-hmm. So these miracles don't stop with the death of the apostles. They continue on. And it's not just Paul, obviously. Right. Uh, going back to the book of Acts, in mm-hmm. Acts 5, we hear about how St. Peter's shadow uh, has these miraculous healing properties. So verses 12 to 16 talks about people bringing the sick into the streets and laying them on beds and mats. And all of the apostles are passing by, and one of them in particular, St. Peter, Mm -hmm. is viewed as the leader and is given leadership by Jesus, but that's a topic for another day. (laughs) And so they really want Peter's shadow, uh, it says, to follow. And so whoever uh, is sick or tormented by impure spirits, if they lay there and then he passes by and the shadow falls on them, they're healed. Yeah. I love how that's beautiful. so beautifully, like, that's what he leaves behind. Like, he leaves his shadow behind him as he walks by. Yeah, it literally is a relic. It literally is something uh, left behind. Mm-hmm. And so we see this also in the life of Christ himself. You know, think about the woman touching the hem of his garment right. in Mark 5. Yep. He turns around and says, who touched my clothes? So you have that real sense that this is a, a power, it said, went out from him. Where it's a different kind of thing than if he goes over and just performs a healing miracle himself. Right. Something is being done, something is being taught through this use of the physical object. And so then, of course, the question is, why? And I would say there are a few reasons. The first reason is it shows the goodness of the body. 
It shows the goodness of the physical world. Too often as Christians, we can fall into a sort of dualism. We say the spiritual world is good and the physical world is bad. We associate the physical world with the flesh in the negative sense. Mm -hmm. And so we just want to get away from it. That is an insult to the incarnation. Yep. In which Christ, the, the word became flesh. You cannot say flesh is evil without saying right. the incarnation is evil. Right. And you can't say creation is evil without saying the creator is evil. Mm-hmm. This is the, the classic sort of problem we had with dualism. This idea that maybe in the Old Testament there had been some evil God. Yeah. Uh, the Gnostics had some sense yep. of this too. Yep. And so it's, it's a veneration of a physical object that affirms the goodness of creation through which we affirm the goodness of the creator. Second, it's a validation of the particular saint. So the saints are given to us as models of holiness. If you want to know what Christianity looks like, look to the saints. And if you want to see where that is in scripture, I mean, Hebrews 11 shows us faith by giving an example after an example after an example of the kind of Old Testament heroes of faith. And then it says at the beginning of Hebrews 12, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, uh, let us run the race. And mm-hmm. so... Mm-hmm. The idea is Christianity was never just you in isolation as an individual saved without anybody else. You're saved as part of a people, as part of a community, as part of a church. And people have gone before you and lived Christianity excellently, showing you how to live Christianity. And the relics are a way of venerating, or I'm sorry, a way of like acknowledging and honoring uh, these saints who have gone before. So it's God saying pretty clearly to his people, this person's a saint. Yeah. When we were talking about like people who strive excellently towards heaven and thinking of the early church, a couple of people come to mind. Uh, St. Augustine is a, is a staple when it comes to looking at the early church and, and striving for holiness. Can you talk about a little bit about how relics played a role in both his life and also the life of the saint who's responsible for his, part, partly for his conversion, St. Ambrose? Yeah. So there's a great line in City of God. Uh, this is book 22, chapter 8, mm-hmm. in which he says, even now, Miracles are wrought in the name of Christ, whether by his sacraments or by the prayers or relics of his saints. Then he says that these miracles are not so brilliant and conspicuous as to cause them to be published with such glory as accompanied the former miracles. Mm-hmm. So he basically says, okay, in the days of the apostles, there were miracles that were so attention-grabbing, kind of headline-getting right. sort of miracles as Christianity is being established. And there's a particular time and place and reason for that. And those miracles largely uh, stop. They don't completely. But the number of people being raised from the dead... Kind of drops off a little bit. ...does seem to drop <laughs> off. Uh, we're, there are still reports of it, but yeah. it, it's much rarer. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, Augustine says, miracles continue to happen. Maybe you're not hearing about them in the news all the time. Right. Because, in part, Christianity isn't some new sect on the scene, mm-hmm. where it's just this strange new thing. Now Christianity is established, but within Christianity, there is still these miracles happening. I may have mentioned uh, in an earlier podcast, I can't remember if I mentioned this or not, but when I was in the Holy Land, I saw a guy raised from the dead. Uh, he had died, and then we pressed a relic to his head, we prayed the rosary, and, and he came back from the dead after after his heart had completely stopped. And there were medical professionals there, mm-hmm. and they weren't able to explain, like, what had just happened. Those sorts of things still happen. Right, right, and make the news, yeah. Right, that got, yeah. like, an article in the local Catholic paper. 
I work at a little Catholic bookstore and I remember people who went on that pilgrimage with you to the Holy Land who came in for a Bible study and like the first thing out of their mouth when they walked in the door was like, guys, I have to tell you this story. (laughs) And yeah, and they shared that story. But yeah, so they still happen. It still happens. Yeah, so I think Augustine's pointing out two things. That these miracles are still happening, but they're not getting the kind of attention that they did before. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways these miracles are still happening is through relics, the relics of the saints. He also talks about the power of the sacraments and the prayers of the saints. Now, Augustine is someone who's held up as a model of holiness by both Catholics and Protestants. Mm-hmm. So it's important to realize he's affirming in one sentence relics and sacramental efficacy yep. in a way that sounds very, very Catholic. <laughs> but he also, this isn't just some theology for mm-hmm. him. This is a lived experience because he knows, like he's got his own stories. Like, you know, I just shared a little bit of a story that I was involved with. He had his own. And it was particularly involving St. Ambrose of Milan, who was his teacher, his mentor, the guy who converted him Mm -hmm. to Catholicism. So Ambrose mentions uh, a particular set of miracles surrounding relics in his letter 22. Uh, He writes this around 386 AD, just if you're wondering, like, where we are in history Mm -hmm. right now. Mm -hmm. I believe he's writing to his sister. He's talking about the dedication of the Basilica in Milan. And so people begin to ask him, um, to consecrate the Roman Basilica. I'm, I'm sorry, consecrate the Basilica in Milan as he had the Roman Basilica. Mm-hmm. And his answer to them, quote, certainly I will if I find any relics of martyrs, end quote. Now, this is an important insight into the history of the church that altars, as you mentioned earlier, yep. have first-class relics of the saints in the altar stone. Mm-hmm. This is an ancient practice. So originally... The church would celebrate Mass on the tombstones of the saints. Right, in the catacombs. Yeah, in the catacombs. Mm -hmm. Like back in the days when Christianity was outlawed, Mm -hmm. they would celebrate literally over the graves, over the tombstones, over the burial places of the saints. So the the bones of the saints were right beneath the altar where they were celebrating. Right. All of this is a beautiful image. In the book of Revelation, we see the martyrs underneath the altar in heaven. Yeah, good point. And so... All of this shows the connection between the earthly liturgy and the heavenly liturgy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, common. once we leave the catacombs, we decide to take the bones with us. <laughs> and so we That's take logical. little fragments of the bodies of the saints, mm-hmm. and we put them in an altar stone, mm-hmm. and we put that in the altar. So the foundation of every altar, there's supposed to be, and it generally is, right. um, a first-class relic of a particular saint, or sometimes multiple saints. Mm-hmm. So Ambrose is saying, you know, I'll... I'll consecrate the basilica if we can uh, get the relics of of martyrs. Mm -hmm. So then he has uh, a prophetic vision according to Augustine. So this is Augustine in Confessions, Book 9. He kind of picks up this account and explains what happens. Now he's beginning, the context of Confessions, if you've never read it, is that it's in the form of a prayer to God that we're sort of invited into. Mm -hmm. So he's writing to God in the second person. And he said, then thou, by a vision, made known to your renowned bishop the spot where lay the bodies of Gervasus and Protasus, the martyrs, whom you had in your secret storehouse preserved uncorrupted for so many years, whence you might at the fitting time produce them. Um, So, a few things to note. First, Ambrose has an actual vision in which he discovers where these martyrs are buried. They then go to the spot, and sure enough, the martyrs are there. Yeah. Second, the martyrs are uncorrupted. 
Like, decay hasn't set in. They're still recognizably themselves. This is a way of showing, again, the goodness of the body and the goodness of the saint. Right. That decay is one of the consequences of the fall. Mm-hmm. And so as a sign of our redemption, as a sign that God is greater than the fall, there are a handful of saints known as incorruptibles. Yep. Whose bodies don't see corruption. Now remember, go back to Acts 2, go back to Psalms. Mm -hmm. This is one of the signs of God's favor. So Peter's sermon on Pentecost is that David preaches about how God won't let his Holy One see corruption. Now that's not a reference to David whose body did decay, Mm -hmm. did decompose. Mm -hmm. Instead it's a reference ultimately to Christ with the resurrection. Right. So in the incorruptibility of the saints, you have a foreshadowing of the resurrection of the dead at the end of time. Mm-hmm. And you have a nod to the resurrection of Christ, who's greater than the power of death. Right. So this is what happens. They find these two martyrs. They're able to consecrate uh, the basilica in Milan. And Ambrose actually says, on the following day, we translated the relics to the basilica. And then he says, during the translation, we're like moving him from place mm-hmm. to place, mm-hmm. a blind man was healed. And he says that the Arians deny that the blind man received sight. But the blind man doesn't deny that he was healed. (laughs) He says, I who could not see, now see. Mm -hmm. He says, I cease to be blind and proves it by the fact. So this is very similar, you know, frankly, to the Gospel of John. I believe it's chapter Mm 9, where Jesus heals this man. Right. And the Pharisees want to just deny it. But the guy is like, well, people saw him (laughs) not well. (laughs) So the the physical case presents it. So Ambrose, in his lifetime, has this vision, finds uncorrupted saints, and then... The relics heal a guy of blindness, and the Aryan heretics who want to say Catholicism is evil are just left flummoxed. Like, they aren't sure kind of what you can say. So they just were like, oh, he wasn't really healed. Mm. But the guy's like, yeah, I'm pretty I sure was. I was. <laughs> so we've been talking about how Catholicism values the human body. And a pope that knew about this and wrote about it beautifully is one of our favorites, St. Pope John Paul II. Um, and his Theology of the Body, which was a series of Wednesday audiences um, and lectures that he gave in the beginning of his papacy, he said, quote, the body and it alone is capable of making visible what is the invisible, the spiritual and the divine, end quote. So at the first glance, there seems to be kind of a contradiction between how we see the human body as Catholics and the practice of the veneration of relics. Like as Catholics, we're told we shouldn't scatter our own ashes. We need to bury the urn. You can't scatter it over the ocean. But we scatter the bodies of saints across the world in reliquaries and altar stones. Why does our right to venerate the saints' relics supersede their right to have their remains buried? I think there's an important distinction to draw Mm -hmm. between someone scattering their ashes and us dividing up the body of a saint. Like, I think we should acknowledge at the gate that it's a a weird practice. Mm -hmm. This is something that strikes people reasonably as a very unusual thing to do to a body. But I think that it's ultimately a way of honoring the body rather than dishonoring it. Someone who scatters their ashes is dishonoring their body. Mm-hmm. They're acting as if their body is nothing, as if it's going to be just like returning to the dust forever, that there is no right. resurrection of the dead. Right. Turning your body into ashes and scattering those ashes is ultimately a rejection of the permanence of the body. Mm-hmm. Relics are the exact opposite of that. Relics say, no, this body... This corpse, even these parts of the body, are in some important way still linked with this saint who's now in heaven, Mm -hmm. who will be in a glorified body. And so what that looks like relative to the particular relics, we don't really know all the particulars of that. There's no reason to believe 
that their relics are going to make, make up the constituent parts of the resurrected body. I think we need to be very clear here. Just like the hair on your head isn't the same as all the hair that's ever been collected. You know, if, if someone were to sweep up all of your hair and keep it for some reason, <laughs> it's connected to your body. It's still you in some way. There's a reason that creeps us out. Right, right. But it isn't the same as the hair on your head. Mm-hmm. So there's... Uh, Eleanor Stump actually has an essay that she writes about this. That if you really understand what we mean by form and matter, that the particular atoms aren't what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. So the atoms making up, you know, the finger of John the Baptist. He will have a, a body that is his body mm-hmm. that is in some way the same body that he's had, but glorified. Right. But it may not have all of the exact same atoms that it had at the moment of his death. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the same way that your body now doesn't have all the exact same atoms that it did five minutes ago, five years ago. Right. So having said that, uh, we want to acknowledge that the body is going to be glorified in whatever form that looks like in a way we can't quite imagine. Mm -hmm. It's compared to a seed blossoming. So there's a connection, but also a transformation. So relics are a way of honoring that rather than dishonoring that. Mm -hmm. And it's a way of honoring it for that particular saint in that particular saint's body. So in that way, it's, it's 180 degrees opposed to uh, destroying your body and scattering the ashes. Right. So, when, you know, for example, to take one uh, maybe slightly macabre example. St. Francis Xavier, his arm, if memory serves, was cut off and yep. brought back to Rome. Yep. Because he baptized thousands of people with that right arm. Mm-hmm. As a way of honoring what he's done, they wanted to venerate uh, his arm. They wanted a place in Rome where pilgrims could come and, and pay homage to him mm-hmm. but they also wanted to recognize the fact that he'd given his life for the you know the peoples of asia and so they didn't want to move his entire body back mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and i think the people there didn't want to right, let to his entire body go <laughs> so it's a way of kind of compromising yeah yeah uh so too you know taking like a little shred of the hair or a few drops of blood of a particular saint is a way of recognizing this incarnate person is a saint and this person will be, you know, resurrected at the end of time. Mm-hmm. I think the word incarnation or incarnational can really sum up like this entire series of, of the Easter season, incarnational. Yeah, we've been talking about it as a physical case. We really could be talking about it as an incarnational case. Mm-hmm. Uh, it comes from the word carne, flesh. Yeah. It's a recognition that, you know, Christ takes on flesh. Right. So much of the time we associate flesh with what's evil. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the day before Ash Wednesday, the day we call Mardi Gras, much mm-hmm. of the world calls carnival. Uh, it's where we get the word carnival in English, mm-hmm. but it literally means farewell to the flesh. Huh, that's fascinating. Yeah, carne vale. Fascinating. And so it's, as far as I understand, it's mm-hmm. a, a bit of a play on words. Right. Because you're saying farewell to the flesh in the sense that you're not going to eat meat. Right. Because Lent's about to begin. Right. But also the sins of the flesh. It's like one last chance yep. Yep. to indulge in the flesh. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of how we think about it. Like mm-hmm. gluttony, lust, drunkenness, right. all of that. That's the flesh. And then we have this spiritual realm we enter into. It's mm-hmm. like, no, that's just not a good understanding right. Right. of the flesh. So the incarnation, in a way, is a repudiation of kind of a carnival mm-hmm. understanding of Christianity. Yeah. That it's, you know, the flesh is all about indulgence and the, or the flesh is evil. We've also been saying this entire series about how, like, if you're wondering about this, like, for instance, like the Shroud of Turin that we did an episode on. If you're wondering about the Shroud of Turin, like, you can get on a plane and go to Turin and see the Shroud. And so, too, it is with relics. Um, 
but like jumping jumping in a plane <laughs> may not be possible for at least for my case. So for most of our listeners in the United States, do you have any recommendations for relics to go on pilgrimage, more of like a road trip, like on a weekend kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, we already mentioned that any Catholic church ought to have a relic in the altar. Right. So if you're just wanting to be by a relic and don't care about which one. <laughs> any church will do. Yeah, you can just walk into a church. Mm-hmm. You may not know who the saint is, but you can be assured as long as they uh, did what they were supposed to in consecrating mm-hmm. the altar. Right. That there's a relic stone, or an altar stone with a relic in it, rather. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But there are also places uh, where you can find giant collections of relics. Right. So, for example, we are recording this from Kansas City. Mm-hmm. In about an hour, maybe an hour and a half north of here, in the town of Clyde, Missouri. Yep. There's a Benedictine uh, convent there for the Sisters of Perpetual Adoration. Mm-hmm. And they have one of the largest reliquaries in the country. And so they have relics of all sorts of saints. And it's common in larger cities particularly to have one or more churches mm-hmm. with a large reliquary. I know down in Phoenix they have a, a large reliquary as well. And so you can sometimes find, if you just want to be around a lot of saints, right? that's a great way to just go and explore, almost like a museum of the saints. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, you want to be surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses in a really physical way. Yeah, yeah. Walking through there and being like, wow. Mm-hmm. These are the relics of all of these great saints who I've read about, these saints who I've prayed to, and now I'm here amongst parts of their body. Right. It's like a little taste of what heaven will be like, being yeah. surrounded by like their glorified bodies after, after the end. Yeah, so I think those would be you know two obvious ways. Mm-hmm. Um, there are places, obviously Rome, like yep. if, you're, if you're wanting to do a pilgrimage, <laughs> if you're wanting to get on a plane, and you won't surpass Rome in terms of the sheer number of, of right. saints who are there. They have the relics of the apostles. They have almost any saint you can name. Mm-hmm. They've intentionally gathered relics of all of them, and, and they have them on display. And some of these relics have been documented. So, you know, one thing probably worth mentioning. Not everything that purports to be a relic mm-hmm. uh, is authentic. There's a chance that there's, you know, scams or right. forgeries or, or you name it. Right. But there are uh, true relics. And overwhelmingly, like when these things have been tested and documented, they, you know, there are a lot of really authentic ones. So mm-hmm. two that, that jump out as obviously being worth mentioning are the bodies of St. Peter and the bodies of St. Paul. Yep. Both of these have been scientifically tested and traced to the first century. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even to, if memory serves, even to like 60-something-year-old men, whatever the case is. But the age range is on point. Right. Uh, they appear to be from the Middle East. They're in the spot where the early Christians said they were. Mm-hmm. And so, they, for example, um, St. Peter was buried, and they, they came and venerated the spot where he was at. Like, mm-hmm. I, like we said earlier, you know, they would often have church services. They'd have the early mass right. on the tombs of the saints. Mm-hmm. So they would have little markers for the dead. And so eventually, when Christianity is legalized, they just build a church, yeah. which we call St. Peter's Basilica, <laughs> on top of that spot. Mm-hmm. And so the altar is above it. So there was a question about whether St. Peter's body really was below that. Yeah. So there were all sorts of controversies in which they said, oh, maybe not. Mm-hmm. Well, in the 1940s, they did excavation and they found his body. They found yeah. his bones. And so you can actually go and see the skeleton or part of the skeleton of St. Peter. Mm -hmm. They don't have his feet because of the way he was crucified. Right. But even that testifies to the authenticity Mm -hmm. of the man. Mm -hmm. Uh, Likewise, St. Paul's head is on display in St. Paul's outside the walls. And so you can find the actual, like, people you read about in the Bible, not just people you read about, like, in the lives of the saints. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you can go and see, like, oh, yeah, 
That's a real they're person. They're real. Yeah. Yeah. I love the story when they're excavating to find out if Peter is really buried under the Basilica. It's during the war in the 1940s. Mm-hmm. Um, and they had to be very secretive about discovering and what they're doing because as like the Nazis in this in the war are known for taking the... Um, it's like, real life Indiana Jones. Right. Like it's Raiders so of the Lost Ark is yes. very similar to the real life story. Yeah. And so the Pope is like um, overseeing this excavation. And of course, like you're, you're tunneling down to see if, if St. Peter's body's there. And all this dirt is present. And so the way that they kind of like slide it under, like so that the, they don't get investigated is saying that they're working on the Vatican Gardens, which is fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm sure they were. Right, exactly. <laughs> they have all this extra dirt for <laughs> yeah. the Vatican Gardens. We're talking about the authenticity of relics. And, and when you talk about the authenticity of relics, one relic that is often brought up is the relic of the true cross. And John Calvin and others have thought that, you know, if you gathered up all of the pieces of the true cross, there would be enough to build a worship. Or there's an, there's way more relics of the true cross than there are the actual original cross. So what's the answer to that objection? It's something that is not true. I mean, mm, yep. <laughs> I know that sounds uh, maybe too glib, but it's just not... It, Calvin is objectively wrong. Mm-hmm. If you were to gather up all the pieces, it, it wouldn't come even close. Mm-hmm. So there was a study done in 1870. Uh, Charles Rohalt de Fleury, he was a scholar. He wanted to see if this objection had any merit. Mm-hmm. So they estimated the size and weight of the cross based on what was known. And, you know, the estimate may be off, even maybe off quite a bit. It doesn't right. really matter because what he found is basically, if you were to get together all of the pieces of the true cross... It'd be about 0.141 cubic feet. Mm-hmm. Think about the pieces of the true cross. It isn't like someone has an entire like arm bar of right. the cross. Right, they're like splinter size. Right, mm-hmm. they're like small fragments of the true cross. Mm-hmm. And so if you were to combine those together, it doesn't even come close. So in terms of cubic millimeters, there's an estimated 4 million cubic millimeters worth of the true cross. That sounds like a lot, mm-hmm. but the cross itself is probably about 178 cubic millimeters. Big difference. So four out of 178. Yeah. It's not even close. So even if they misjudged, even if they thought the cross was like 10 times bigger right. than It'd it actually still was. still be within those parameters. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so it's just not even particularly close. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A cross made of just the piece of the true cross would be pitifully small. It wouldn't yep. be large enough to crucify our Lord on. Right. He wouldn't be collapsing under the weight of it. It's It's just not like Calvin's objection and the objection of so many Mm -hmm. is just objectively, scientifically untrue. So another objection is that the relics of the true cross are something that Constantine created or something that came about in the Middle Ages. Yeah, this is also just historically untrue. Mm -hmm. And we know this from reading documents from the 4th century. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not just like, oh, as a Catholic, just close your eyes to history. It's like, no, like read the actual evidence Mm -hmm. and you'll see, for example... St. Cyril of Jerusalem. He's born in 313. He dies in 386. He has a series of catechetical lectures, which were probably given around the year 350, mm-hmm. to those about to be baptized. And he's going over the Christian faith. And so in lecture four, he has what he calls 10 points of doctrine mm-hmm. that he wants to cover with them. And one of them is of the cross. And so he says that Jesus, quote, was truly crucified for our sins. For if you would deny it, the place refutes you visibly, this blessed Golgotha, in which we are now assembled for the sake of him who was here crucified. And the whole world has since been filled with pieces of the wood of the cross. End quote. So he's saying, you know, this is a thing that physically happened. Now, obviously, 
not everyone gets to be in Jerusalem. Not everyone can go right. to Golgotha like Cyril and those about to be baptized mm-hmm. could. Mm-hmm. But he points out to them that the cross isn't just something we have here in Jerusalem, but there are pieces of the cross around the world, like around, right. you know, obviously then the, the known, known world. world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So by the mid-300s, that was the understanding of Christians. And it wasn't like, you know, 20 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Or, you know, it wasn't something where in 500 years, I bet someone will come up with a true cross. And right. We'll... So, no, like, the relics of the true cross were distributed throughout the churches. They were held up for veneration, held up for the highest honor that you right. could pay. Uh, because this isn't just a relic of a saint. Mm-hmm. This is a cross on which we have our salvation. And so the early Christians would speak of worshiping the cross. Now, here we need to make an important distinction. Mm-hmm. When we talk about worship, we mean that we worship God through the cross. When we venerate the relics of the saints, it's because the saints are appropriately venerated. Mm -hmm. So Aquinas will talk about this in the Summa, because this is a controversial point. Like, why do we speak of, you know, on Good Friday, for example, they'll say, Behold, behold the wood of the cross Mm -hmm. on which is hung our salvation. Come, let us worship. Yeah. Why don't they say, come, let us venerate? Mm -hmm. Because we can talk about the cross saving us. And the way we can talk about Christ saving us. What we mean is that Christ saves us through the cross. Right. Right. So Aquinas will compare it to the things of a king. Like you kiss the shoes of the king. Right. Or you venerate the robes of the king. You, you give it the honor owed to the king himself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But you don't kiss the wife of the king. You don't kiss the queen. <laughs> and so that's why uh, the manger and the cross mm-hmm. are giving this worship, not as objects themselves, but we worship right. God through them. Right. And we don't do that with, like, Mary, because right. that would be idolatry. Right, right, or the saints. which Right, mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. And so that's an important, but we're not saying these objects as objects ought to be worshipped. Right, right. Without Christ on the cross, the cross is just a piece of, like, a piece of wood. Right, mm-hmm. but through the wood of the manger and through the wood of the cross, the incarnation happens and our salvation is worked. Mm-hmm. And so we want to acknowledge that. And so they spoke of that in the highest terms, even in terms of worship. But it speaks, again, to that very ancient, very early respect for relics. The relics of Christ. Those things which he had left behind. Mm-hmm. And then also the relics of the saints. So we've been talking about relics this, this entire episode. If you had any takeaways that you wanted listeners to, to take away from this episode, what would you have them be? I'd say that even though the particular relics mm-hmm. of a saint aren't the basis of Catholicism, that the relics themselves are totally in keeping with what the Catholic Church teaches, and they're a natural result. It's the way God shows the dignity of the body, mm-hmm. the promise of the general resurrection to come, mm-hmm. and the particular sanctity of a given saint. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for your time My this afternoon. Pleasure. <laughs> Let's close in a prayer. Yep. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And Father, and Son, and Holy Spirit.